You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is uh, detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. And if you turn with me to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 8. Verses 1 to 22, whole chapter. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abihah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, From the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen. And to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commandments of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of this text. 
on a week when our nation elects its rulers. I thank you for the gift of this text. Father, I pray that we would hear it, that we would believe it, and Lord, that you would teach us to live in the light of it. Help us to be a people who repent of the sin of longing to be like the other nations, of longing for a God king like the other nations, and help us instead to cling to our Lord and our King, Jesus. So come now and speak through your word, transform us and change us into the image of your Son. In your name we pray, amen. I spent two years in college attending um, a school in the state of Maryland, actually pretty close to Washington, D.C., um, and what uh, tended to happen because of my proximity to D.C. Um, is I had a number of friends from my hometown, family friends, uh, who wanted to come and visit D.C. So I became um, kind of the unofficial, you have six hours in Washington, D.C. How do you see everything you want to see in six hours in Washington, D.C.? I became the tour guide for six-hour tours. Um, I could extend it out to 12 hours for uh, roughly 30% more price-wise, um, but for the most part, um, friends that I grew up with and their parents, uh, friends from the church I grew up in would fly into town, um, and then I would get to spend time with them, but the, the kind of the way I got to spend time with them um, was walking a lot of miles um, up and down the streets of D.C. Um, there is something about Washington, D.C. If you've never been there, it's, it's really unlike any other city in our country, um, and, and particularly because of the monuments and, and particularly because of the National Mall. I don't know if you've ever stood on the National Mall, but, but it is intended to create a sense of awe. It is, cre- it is intended to create a sense of size and scope and glory, that you stand there and as you look um, um, at depending on how close you are on the mall, um, at the National Capitol on one end, at the Washington Monument, and, um, and the Lincoln Memorial, and the, um, the White House, if you're far enough um, on towards the end of the Washington Monument. Um, you are surrounded by white marble. You're surrounded by glory. You're surrounded by um, an architecture and a landscape that is intended to communicate grandness. It's intended to communicate greatness. It's intended to communicate glory. You are meant to stand at certain places in Washington, D.C. and have a sense of awe. A sense of awe at this nation. A sense of awe at our history. A sense of awe at our, um, at least our declared intentions as a nation. It, that there is a temptation as you stand on the National Mall um, to, to, to consider the United States, to consider her government to be something different than merely a human government. That there's a temptation to see attached to um, the, the, the honor, the, the appropriate honor and love that you are intended to have um, for your nation, that there is a temptation on that mall um, to have something uh, just a little bit more. But more than just an appreciation, but a, a, a vision of grandness 
and glory, a temptation to trust in her more than you ought, to look to her establishments, her senators, her presidents, her courts, to look to them for more than you ought to. I want us to consider today the root of that particular temptation um, as it plays out rather pristinely for us in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, we, as we continue to work our way through 1 Samuel, um, we have uh, what's known in storytelling as a time jump um, between chapter 7 and chapter 8. Um, at the end of chapter 7, we found that Samuel was kind of a circuit judge, uh, traveling from town to town, um, um, bringing God's justice to different cases and different, um, different issues that would arise in the life of Israel. Um, and it's actually important for us to understand the nature of Israel's life together at this time. Um, Israel would have seen itself primarily not as one nation. Um, they would have seen itself as 12 tribes um, who all worshipped and acknowledged the same God. Um, that there wasn't any centralized government or centralized army. Um, if there was a war to be fought, um, then messengers would be sent and the different tribes would send their warriors um, to go into battle um, against, uh, against a foreign king or an invading army or the Philistines, as we saw um, in chapter 7. But, but don't think of it as, hey, there was like a, um, a Washington, D.C. called Jerusalem at this time, and, and there was a central government, and there were central courts, and there was a central priesthood, um, and there was a centralized government functioning in rule over the entire nation of Israel. No, instead you should understand um, that there are 12 tribes who all acknowledge and worship Yahweh. Um, they acknowledge the same history, the same story of coming out of Egypt. Um, if they were called to arms, they would fight on behalf of one another generally, although things get sideways I'm in the book of Judges um, as there is some intertribal fighting. Um, and that the way that justice was served, the way that um, kind of how we would think of government functions as actually taking place um, was one, it was extremely minimal. Um, and two, it was largely just deci- deciding disputes, deciding cases um, between brothers, uh, between brothers in the same tribe or brothers living in the same region um, that needed to be decided. And so Samuel is functioning in that role um, at the end of chapter 7. Um, and so at the end of chapter 7, we find that he is doing that um, throughout Israel. The Philistines have been defeated. And then we open chapter 8, and it says, when Samuel became old. Um, we know that Samuel's an adult at the end of 7. Um, uh, but now at the beginning of 8, he's an old adult. Um, and he now has sons, and he has sons who have um, become adults who are now actually functioning as judges alongside him. Um, so most scholars place the kind of the, the time jump that's taking place between chapter 7 and chapter 8 to be about 30 years. About 30 years have happened between um, what happened at Ebenezer, the second Ebenezer, um, Samuel beginning to judge Israel, and then when we get to this turn in chapter 8. Um, I think the reason why the author writes the story the way that he does, it doesn't give us any of these intervening years, because he wants to contrast for us the, the glory that Israel had with God as their king fighting on their behalf 
But with the nature of the sin that we're going to see unfold in chapter 8, in which Israel demands a king like the other nations who will go before them and fight on their behalf. I, I think that's why the story is being told the way it is, to offer that contrast. Here's how things go when God fights your battles. Here's how things go when you want to be like the other nations. Okay? So that's what's going on in terms of timeline. What's happening? Well, Samuel's old. We don't know how old. What's interesting is he doesn't die for a lot more chapters. Um, so I guess he's old for a long time. Um, and, uh, and he's appointed his two sons. Um, and his two sons, Joel and Abijah, Abijah, sorry, um, they are not like he is. They're corrupt. Um, now, now there's, there's an echo here of what we already saw at the very beginning of the book, correct? Remember Eli? From what we know of Eli, he seems like a good, good priest overseeing the worship of Israel. But his sons are corrupt priests. And they're corrupting the worship of Israel. Here we have Samuel functioning as a judge. In other words, he's functioning under, um, if you think of Eli and his sons as functioning um, primarily over the worship of God's people. Um, you should think of Samuel and his sons as functioning over um, the issues of justice, the, the, the function of the magistrate over God's people. And here you have Samuel, who seems to be doing a pretty good job, um, doing a great job honoring God, um, listening to God, and yet his sons abandon um, or, or begin to twist the nature of justice. It says that they are perverting justice by taking bribes. This is a very, very serious thing. And see, if you function as a judge, if you function as a magistrate, um, you are to be um, an emissary representative of God himself um, executing justice. Now, not seeking out personal gain, not marring justice or twisting justice for the sake of personal gain, um, not, not uh, taking a bribe, wink, wink, over here and condemning this person over here. Um, you see, to do so is to misrepresent the very glory and justice of God. So, so it's not a small thing to take bribes. So they're taking bribes as God's judges in Israel therefore misrepresenting the character and the nature of God. The other thing that we know is beginning to happen here in chapter 8 um, is the Ammonites are getting uppity. Um, so they are a, a nation, a pagan nation nearby Israel, and they're starting um, to kind of take the plate. The Philistines have been defeated now, and the Ammonites are starting to kind of get, hey, maybe, we, maybe it's our turn to kind of take power um, and take over per- portions of of Israel and start, uh, start forcing Israel to be our slaves. It's going to come up in 1 Samuel 12. Um, it's the first thing that Saul uh, is actually going to have to address. And so um, we've got kind of those three things all coming together. It's been about 30 years since Ebenezer. So, so just long enough for people to start to forget when God won this, this great victory on their behalf. Um. The Ammonites, it seems like their enemies are getting bolder. Their enemies are, are, are starting to cause problems for Israel. And Samuel's sons are not like Samuel. So, 
If Samuel's sons, like Eli's sons, are corrupt, um, and it's important to recognize that, that there's actually a pattern unfolding here. Um, worship is corrupted. Now justice is being corrupted, um, which I think is basically and always historically true. Um, when the worship of the church is corrupted, when the worship of the church is flattened, when the worship of the church fails to hold fast to God's word and to, um, to, to rejoice in the glory of God and the holiness of God and the grace of God and the sovereignty of God, um, the impact historically has always been that justice begins to be corrupted in that nation. I'd love to spend more time there, but that's the pattern. Which means, I'll just spend one little bit more time there. Which means that if you want justice to be reestablished in a nation, you must first reestablish worship. The, the, The political problems that we face as a nation will not be fixed politically. They must first be fixed as a matter of worship. And then they will be fixed politically. The most fundamental issue at work in the United States is that there is a church that is anemic. That has failed to honor God and worship God and love God and hail Christ as King and Lord and Savior and Redeemer above all things. Not that the wrong party has power. Fundamental issue whenever there's a justice issue is most and firstly, firstly an issue of worship. When a nation jumps off the rails culturally and politically, it is because the church has failed to worship her king and her lord and her savior. So that pattern has unfolded. So Israel, in the light of these things, in the light of kind of these conditions, they come to Samuel and they demand a king. Now it's important to catch this phrase because it's important, because it's key. They say, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And that's the key to why this is sin. Um, We know from other places in Scripture, Genesis 49, Deuteronomy 17, that the request for a king, that God actually builds into the law, builds into the whole story of Israel, um, builds into the promises given to Israel, um, this sense that, that, that one day you will have a king. Um, and Deuteronomy actually even lays out warnings about how the king should, should rule and how the king should not rule. Um, and, and so when you come to this, it might be like, well, if God intended to give Israel a king, um, if part of his promise, part of his purposes for seeing um, Israel be blessed and Israel to become um, the, the, the ground zero for his renewal of the earth and his in gathering of all the nations of the earth, um, then why is the judgment so severe here in chapter 8 as Israel comes and demands a king? It's because they didn't just demand a king. They demanded a king like the other nations. 
Um, what does it mean, a king like the other nations? Well, we, they spell it out for us down to verse 20. Look at, look at it with me. They respond to Samuel after he warns them. We're going to look at that warning up close here in a second. Their response is, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. Okay, there it is. Now, what does it mean? That our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So one, they want a king like the other nations so they, they might have the prestige, kind of the, the, the honor, the respect that the other nations have. So the first thing that they are seeking um, in having a king like the other nations um, is they want honor, they want respect, they want prestige. They don't want to be like those you know, backwoods people, um, those weird whole tribes of Israel people. They're kind of backwoodsy. They're not like the, the, the Chaldeans. They're not like the Philistines. They're not like um, these nations that are strong and prestigious and have um, big marble columns and giant buildings and, um, and, 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 uh, and places where princes dwell and thrones for kings and standing armies. Um, they don't have those kinds of prestigious and glorious things. So, so they want a king like the other nations because they want that honor, they want that prestige, um, and, and then two, they want a king who will judge them. That's important for a reason that I'll get into for a second. And three, they want someone to go and fight for them. Now, those last two are interesting because the way that kings functioned in the ancient world and our own often is that the kings were stand-ins for gods. More often than not, the the kings or the emperors or the rulers of nations um, uh, were uh, 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 treated as a deity by their people, as treated with the honor of a god before their people. Um, And and while many of these people were religious people and had other gods, um, those gods were simply useful um, and and wielded by the king to accomplish his purposes for the nation. In other words, the the king, what, what primarily marks a king like the other nations is a king who, who presides in place of God. Who rules in place of God. Who saves in place of God. Who vanquishes enemies in place of God. Israel demands in the place of God a new God. A king king who will rule over them. But we know this is the case because God himself describes for us what is actually unfolding here. Look with me at verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Um, whenever you have in the Bible God interpreting an event for you, it's always right. He never like messes it up. So he looks at and defines for us, interprets for us what Israel is doing and demanding a king like the other nations. He's saying they're rejecting me from being king over them so that they can have a different king. Um, look with me a little bit further and it gets, gets even clearer. 
um, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. What are they doing in asking for a king like the other nations? They're, they're, they're forsaking me, their true living God, um, so that they might go serve other gods. You see what's happening here. They want a king like the other nations. They want a God like the other nations. They want to be ruled by someone other than the God who just 30 years ago conquered the Philistines for them. So how does does the response go? Samuel immediately sees the request for what it is. Um, I think it's, it's fair to say that what's happening with um, the people naming Samuel's sons, I, I think that's kind of like a convenient um, excuse for them to do what they actually want to do. Um, it's like, uh, hey, like we need to emphasize this on the news um, so it can be an excuse to get this guy out of power, um, even when whatever it is on the news has, really it's just about getting this guy out of power. Um, That's kind of what's happening. They're they're taking the excuse of Samuel's sons um, and using that kind of as a grounds um, to turn away from God. And it's interesting, too, because I think one of the themes that the book of Samuel is going to develop for us um, is that in the face of problems, in the face of tragedy, in the face of enemies, in the face of sin, um, you're going to see this kind of uh, two different kinds of responses um, happening kind of over and over and over again, being contrasted for us. Um, And the first one, which Israel continues to do over and over and over again, um, is rather than going to God, rather rather than pleading with God for his mercy, um, they they kind of double down on the rebellion, double down on their autonomy, um, and instead try to serve other gods. You're going to see this as a contrast between David and Saul. Um, It's one of the main contrasts set up in 1 and 2 Samuel. Um, Is that Saul, when faced and confronted with his sin, doubles down on it, Um, When he has trouble, when he has needs, um, he, instead of coming to God, seeking God's mercy, seeking God's forgiveness, seeking God's help, um, he actually doubles down on his sin. Whereas David, when, um, and even on on most appearances, um, David's sin is at least initially worse than Saul's. Um, uh, David, when confronted with his sin, uh, repents of his sin. He still has to face the consequences for his sin, um, but he is ultimately restored by God. That, that contrast is set up for us in First and Second Samuel. And here you have Israel who's faced with a problem, faced with um, kind of heating up conditions and some questions about Samuel's son. And rather than turning to God and pleading with him for his mercy and his help, um, they kind of come up with their own solution. And that solution is to turn away from God and to ask for their own king. Samuel sees this for what it is. God then names the request for what it is. It's not simply kind of, hey, they're looking for a new, um, maybe less efficient or less liberty-driven form of government. Um, Instead, uh, he sees it as fundamentally not just a rejection of Samuel, not just a rejection of, of Samuel's sons, but ultimately a rejection of him as their king. They want another God. And here's just a principle I want to throw in. Politics is always about religion. 
Now you're not supposed to say that in America. Separation of church and state, all, all that stuff. Who governs you and makes your laws and what laws are put in place are always fundamentally religious questions. They always are. It's unavoidable. There's no such thing as neutral public space. And anyone trying to sell it to you is lying. And they've been trying to sell it to us for a couple of centuries now. Politics is always fundamentally religious, and it is linked explicitly for us. Chapter 8. God, in the light of this, names it for what he is, but he says to Samuel, go ahead and do it. Um, Go ahead and give them what they want, but you must warn them. Um, God's uh, mercy and God's judgments are always accompanied by warnings. And so Samuel then describes for them what's going to happen. And we're not going to dive into this in um, explicit detail. I do want to point out a couple of things to you. One, um, the, the great theme in this uh, paragraph of description that Samuel lays out for the people of Israel um, of what this king, like the other nations, will do is that the king, like the other nations, will take. He will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. He will take away your fruitfulness. He'll take away your family. He'll take away your wealth. He'll take away your money. He'll take away everything that God has given you. He will take it for himself. There's a couple things in addition to point out. Um, He will take things around, and and Genesis 17 kind of lays out uh, three G's. I got this from someone else. I feel a little bit guilty stealing it, but I'm going to steal it. Um, Three G's in Deuteronomy 17 is the warning given to kings. Kings shouldn't um, multiply guns, girls, or gold. Um, And Samuel lays out kings will come and take uh, take your sons um, in order to multiply guns. Um, there is uh, a number of scholars have pointed out what appears to be a sexual euphemism. Um, in verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. Um, that phrase, cooks and bakers, uh, is used in the book of Job um, as sexual innuendo. Um, and so there is uh, built into this, um, uh, I think, based on that text, on the idea that um, the, the king will come and take your daughters to be in his harem, um, therefore corrupting the nation sexually. And third, he will multiply wealth. And so you have a king who will, like the other nations, what will they do? Um, if they take power, they will take. They will take guns, they will take girls, they will take gold. Um, and it's interesting, too, to note the emphasis here on a tithe, that the king will come and take a tenth, a tithe, um, of all of your wealth. What's hilarious about that is that um, Samuel's saying, can you imagine a world in which the government would come and try and presume to take 10% of your wealth from you? Um, If we could only have 10%, it would be great. Um, But that's what he does. And there's some significance to this um, beyond just the fact that uh, Samuel believes that the government taking 10% from you is absolute tyranny and oppression. Um, it is that God himself requires a tenth from his people in worship. In other words, this king will presume himself to be owed what God is owed. 
Think about that for a second. God required of his people a tenth. It's an act of worship, an act of trust, a dedication to him and, and his worship. And the king will presume to require as much from you as God would require of you. You see that more is going on here? This isn't just a political question, it is a religious question. Who will you trust? Who will you worship? Well, this king will come require that you worship him as you worship God. That you trust him, give him your wealth as you would God. And last summary here is that you will be his slaves. That you will exist to serve him. You will exist to build up his house, his wealth. You will exist to honor him, to serve him. Your life will be owned by him and defined by him. If you seek a king like the other nations, then the whole existence of the nation, the whole existence of your life will be designated and bent towards serving this king like the other nations. And the last and perhaps the most devastating word in this entire text, there in verse 18, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. That all of this will take place, all of this will unfold. Um, your king will, um, the king that you're demanding, the king that you want will bring about this oppression against you and upon you. And you will call on the Lord, but he won't answer you. He won't listen to you. See, there's something unfolding here in that this demand for a king, like the other nations, there is something to the nature of kinghood being established right here um, in which the people's fate is bound up with the righteousness or the unrighteousness of their king. There will not be the opportunity to separate that, to call upon the name of the Lord um, and be freed from this system that's going to be put in place. Their fate and the king's fate will be bound together. You kind of see this begin to unfold in First and Second Kings um, as you have this pattern that kind of repeats itself again and again and again. Um, there was this good king and things go well for Israel and there was this bad king and things go badly for Israel. Um, there's, there, you never have, uh, um, the, the, this king is unfaithful, but the people are being faithful. Or the people are being unfaithful, but the king is faithful. They're, they're, they're bound up together in First and Second Kings. And when you have a righteous king that loves the Lord, a righteous king who abides under his rule and his reign, um, then things go well for Israel. When you don't, it doesn't. So, that's what unfolds in this text. I want, to make some, I want us to make some considerations about what's happening here. Consider what this text says to us. Um, first is a proverbial word. Sons matter. Children matter. 
And, and I don't mean like they matter in the sense that um, there is, uh, uh, it's kind of one little important part of your life. Um, there is a sense in which you can spend your life, and this is the, the irony of our cultural moment, you can spend your life building a career, building a name, building wealth, building success, um, and, and in doing so, neglect the, the, the parentage of your children. Neglect the care and the discipleship of your children. Um, and all of it is destroyed in one generation. So, so here's just a, a, a small proverbial word before moving to the rest of it. Fathers, raising your sons is among the most vital, important, non-negotiable things that you've been called to. It is a fool's errand to neglect your sons and your daughters while chasing after honor and prestige and success in your career. One of the goals set out in Scripture of your career, of the work you've been called to do, is that you might leave a legacy for your sons and your daughters. And so it is the height of stupidity I said stupid from the pulpit. But it is. It's stupid. It is the height of stupidity to neglect the parenting of your children, the discipleship of your children, um, the, the pouring into and raising up of your children to know and fear God, to love his word, um, to trust his justice, to cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is stupid to neglect that so that you can make some more money. So that you can have a little bit more honor. Because the scriptures play out. And if 1 Samuel is about anything, it's about um, um, the, the problem that arises when you have a, a faithful father with unfaithful sons. That pattern actually repeats itself um, uh, four times over the course of First and 2 Samuel. Eli, unfaithful sons. So he has to come, God gives him a new son, Samuel. Samuel, unfaithful sons, gives him a new son, Saul. Saul, interesting, is an exception to the whole thing. He ends up having um, two faithful sons, remarkably faithful sons. Um, we'll look at those when we get there. And God gives him also a third son, David, um, as Saul himself becomes unfaithful. He flips the pattern. So that's the first thing to take note of. Fathers, mothers, do not neglect raising of your children. Pour your life into them. Second, we're confronted with an issue here. We've already touched on it. Um, I want to kind of explore it just a little bit further. I think it's fundamental and central to to what's actually going on and what we can take away from this. One, um, the Bible doesn't say that there's anything wrong with kings per se. Um, it's really important you see that. The problem in 1 Samuel 8 is not merely that they ask for a king. It's that they ask for a king like the other nations. Um, in fact, as we unfold what, what is going on in the whole Old Testament narrative, um, what we see is kings are potentially really, really good. In fact, more than potentially really good, absolutely essential and necessary to what God intends to do on the earth. Um, it's, in other words, the problem is not kings per se, but they ask for a king like the other nations. So I would encourage you, 
Uh, we don't have time now, but look at Genesis 49, 8 through 12. There is a scepter that will belong to Judah, the Lion of Judah, um, who will reign over the nations. You have Deuteronomy 17, where a particular description of what does a good king look like. We get a clear picture of what an evil king looks like here in 1 Samuel 8. And the primary thing that you find that a good king looks like is, uh, um, uh, and if you want to know what a good senator looks like, or you want to know what a good president looks like, you want to know what a good judge looks like, if you want to look like, look, find out what anyone who is good who's serving as a civil magistrate, here's the fundamental key according to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17. They don't multiply guns, they don't multiply girls, they don't multiply gold, um, and they are absolutely subject to the law of God. They tremble before the fear of God, the holiness of God, and the greatness of God, and the sovereign rule of God. So if you want a good king, they must acknowledge that they're not a God, that God is God. They must acknowledge that his word, his law, is above all things. (coughs) You find... Additionally, in Revelation 21, the great image of um, the glory of God filling the earth, the image is that the kings of all the nations come into the New Jerusalem. They come into the church and they bring the glory of their nations um, to honor King Jesus. In other words, what's happening in, in 1 Samuel 8 um, it is not a problem because it's a king. It's a problem because it's a king who doesn't do that. Insisting on a king who's like the kings of the other nations. Here's where I want us to begin to land. I think this problem persists in all of humanity. We constantly chase after a king like the other nations. We want a God that's touchable, that's seeable, a God who will serve us and, and, and meet our needs and bring us salvation. But we don't want it to be that God. Um, the reality is, is um, to, to contrast, kind of, I think, the Christian temptation um, with the kind of godless or secularist reality, uh, if I can do that for just a moment. Um, when you live in a, a godless system, when you presume that there is no God, um, you kind of, uh, as the Bible would describe it, atheism or secularism um, or unbelief is fundamentally um, people throughout humanity shoving their fingers in their ears, closing their eyes and yelling over and over and over again, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. Um, And yet they always pattern their life and their societies um, in such a way as that there has to be a God. Um, Only it has to be someone, a God other than this God. There has to be a king other than the God who is king, which is why godlessness and the more explicit the godlessness, the more explicit the secularism, um, the faster it happens, all such societies um, bend towards absolute devastating tyranny. That's why your politics is always connected to your worship. 
If a nation will not have God as her king, if a people will not worship God as their king, as their Lord, as their savior, um, they will in fact have a God. They will in fact have a king, but it will be um, a, a king who takes from them everything. If there is not a God to hold all gods in check, if there not, is not a king um, to which all other kings answer to, then the only solution, the only place you can end up is tyranny and destruction and death and oppression. And this isn't just true of nations. It's true of families. It's true of marriages. It's true of businesses. If God is not your father, fathers, you will always bend towards tyranny. Or, if God is not your father, your wife will bend your home towards tyranny. Design of God is that He is our King, He is our Father, He is our Lord, He is our Savior, and all other authority structures, whether it's society with its magistrate or king, or whether it's the home with its father, um, um, all of those places are meant to have rulers, um, to have authorities that are subject to the rule of God, subject to the kinghood of God, subject to the fatherhood of God. We answer to Him and then exercise only His authority into all of those fears. And if you will not have any higher king but your king, if you will not have any other savior but Trump or Biden or DeSantis or whoever, um, if you will not have um, any other father um, except the father in your home or any other tyrant except for the father or the mother in your home, then you will have tyranny and death and destruction. What you'll have. The bend of the human heart is to believe that maybe this time we can do it better. Maybe I don't have to have God as my king. Maybe I can be free of his rule and I can just rule myself. And it will always end this way. Every single time. Because the reality that the scriptures expose about us is that apart from grace, apart from the mercy of God, every single one of us would rather have slavery than to be ruled by King Jesus. We would rather be enslaved to tyrants than free under the good reign of God. And, And this is a problem not just with those who are trapped in unbelief. Um, it is a constant temptation. Those who believe in Jesus, those who know his good reign, the temptation again and again and again is to become your own Lord. The last question I want us to end on today is what is this sovereign and holy God doing in the midst of all of it? I am struck by how here is a people demanding a new God, demanding a new king. Think about that. This is absolute darkness and blasphemy. 
a people who are rejecting God as their king, rejecting him as their God, that they might have other gods, that they might serve other gods. Um, I mean, Samuel confronts them with where this is all going to go. They're going to be slaves, and they're going to be slaves to this God king. They're, they're gonna, um, um, he's going to take and take and take and take from them. He's going to enslave their daughters. Um, he's going to enslave their sons. Um, he's going to take um, uh, 10% and presume himself to be a god um, like, the, like the God of the universe. Um, and you would think, this, this is darkness. Yet God is twisting and turning and building and establishing the foundation upon which he will sit his king. King not like the king of the other nations. In fact, a king who will be king over all the nations. Not just David, but, but the fruit of David, the, the, um, the stump of David, Jesus himself. Um, he, God, in the midst of this darkness, this rebellion, this sin, um, um, warning, um, offering cautions, but saying in the end, okay, let's go ahead and do this. Um, uh, he says, ultimately, I'm going to take all of this sin, all of this rebellion, and establish my kingdom for all times. You want a king like the other nations? I will give you a king who will rule over all the nations. I mean, what must he be like that he takes the darkest moments of rebellion and idolatry, um, the idolatry that would enslave you and me, um, the tyranny that would destroy us, destroy our families, destroy nations, and he right in the smack dab in the middle of it, not despite it, but precisely in the midst of it and through it, He will bring a king of his own choosing, David. David's son, Jesus, will reign forever and ever and ever, and all the nations will bow to him, and all of his enemies will be crushed under the heel of his feet, and he will bring his people, his servants, his sons, his brothers, into the freedom of the sons of God. Marvel at God. Let's pray. So Father, we declare and confess again that you are our king. Not a king who takes and takes and takes and takes, but a king who sets a meal before us. Gives and gives and gives, feeds us. King who reigns over us, king who goes before us to fight our battle, king who is just, always just, and never unjust. So we come to this table and we worship you, the only true God, our living God, and our king. In your name we pray, amen.